We are in week two of our series, Everyday Disciples. And we're going to talk about, as we talk about becoming a disciple who makes disciples, we started out last week by talking about, well, what is a disciple? And a disciple we saw is a devoted apprentice of Jesus. Um, a, a rabbi would look for someone not just who could stuff their head full of knowledge and get to know what they knew, but someone who could actually do what they did, who could become like their teacher, who could become like their rabbi, like their master. And so what, what we're looking at during this series, uh, or at least the first four weeks, are four key traits or roles of a disciple. And, and here is, we kind of spent a lot of time on this this year. Um, what, we, what we came up with are four different things that uh, for our church, it's, it would be our dream that every person who calls this church their home church would embrace and embody these four traits or these four roles as a disciple. Because we think if, if that happened, um, it would become powerful and it would really change our valley. And so last week we talked about this, a responsive follower. A devoted apprentice, a disciple of Jesus, is a responsive follower, someone who is daily seeking God's direction and choosing to obey. And so we gave you a couple little questions to think about, and I hope you thought about those this week. What has God recently revealed to you through Scripture or prayer? That, that a, a, so a responsive follower is in the Word regularly, seeking God in the Word, and then also in prayer and listening and seeking the direction of God. And then the second one is, are you doing what he says? And so I think as we begin to think through these questions in our life, hopefully on an ongoing basis, this will really set us in a direction of being a responsive follower. Now, we're going to talk about the second one on this list today, and that's this. That's available friend. And let me just set this up by, by talking through a, a definition or a, a sentence we have that will help you remember what this means and help you think about this. And that's this. I am consistently prioritizing friendships by keeping room in my schedule to connect with people. That an available friend is someone who consistently prioritizes friendships by keeping room in my schedule to connect with people. And some of you are already like, oh, no, because I know you. You're busy. You got a lot of things going on, and sometimes this gets really hard. I remember a hiking trip from when I was a kid. My mom took me. I think I was only seven years old at the time. And she took me on like a geology, biology hike that she was doing with some scientists uh, down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back up. And you know what? I remember zero of the biology or geology from that trip. But there was this kid. Um, he was 12 years old. And I tell this to my kids and young people in the room, listen up, because you can have a, a real impact on those younger. This, I was seven, and this kid was 12, and I thought he was like the coolest guy ever. And he actually paid attention to me. Like he was kind to me. He included me. He spent time with me. He even helped carry my backpack for a little ways on the way back up when I was super tired. And like I said, I don't remember a lot about that trip. Certainly none of the things I learned about geology or biology. But I remember that kid and the impact and how much that meant to me. He was an available friend to me, even in that short moment. And it really impacted my life. Some of you can think of somebody in your life that, that did that, or you have probably hopefully have quite a few people in your life. And in that moment, um, for me, that was the most important and memorable part of that trip for me. 
And here's what I know about life, and I think we can all agree on this, that it is really easy for us to miss out on what is most important in life, isn't it? It's really easy to get so distracted, so busy, so caught up in everything going on that we actually miss out on what is, we would all agree, is the most important in life. In life, we know that relationships, if you're a believer, you certainly know a relationship with Jesus, but then relationships with other people in your life, this is the, this is the real stuff. This is the most important stuff. In fact, I remember reading a uh, article by a, a hospice nurse who wrote, wrote a book about this and spent so much time with people right at the very end of their life and started noticing the commonalities and what all these people would share. And it wasn't status, wasn't success. So many actually had a lot of regrets when it came to the amount of time that they spent away from relationships pursuing status or success. It was relationships, ultimately, that were incredibly important. The relationships that had been poured into and here's what I think. In, in our culture, um, busyness is kind of an idol, isn't it? In fact, I talked about this a while ago. We use busyness as a badge of honor almost. It's almost a stock response for a lot of us when someone asks, how are you? And you're like, busy. And I preached on that like three weeks, and then I've caught myself doing that like five times since then. And every time I'm trying to come up with a different one. Because it's, it, it it's where we go, isn't it? It's where we go in life. And oftentimes, almost all the time, it comes at the expense of relationships, of things in our life that ultimately one day we'll look back on and we'll say, that was actually the thing that really mattered the most in that moment. And I think I might have missed it in some instances, in a lot of instances. If we're not careful, we could be filled with regret. The other thing I think, busyness, I think, I think part of the busyness thing is, is we pack our lives full of good things and sometimes they're the enemy of the thing that's actually the most important. Because our lives are just so full of good things, and there's just no margin in our lives. Relationships just get crowded out. I think this comes because, partly because we as humans are kind of addicted to feeling important or productive. Maybe not you, um, but if you're type A in the room, <laughs> if you're like me, um, where, where a lot of like the way you feel is, is how much you get done or how you know, successful you feel at things. Um, it's really easy. It's really easy to be addicted to feeling important. In the meantime, relationships just get crowded to the sidelines. In fact, the more you desire to be seen as successful, the less available you probably will be because it will impact a lot of different areas of your life and where you let people in. There's a social pressure, pressure to feel important and feel like you're doing important things and feel like you're successful. And because of that, how many of you uh, maybe have avoided having certain people over to your house because, uh, well, it's your house. It's not done. That's that was me, okay? It's not done. I like there's old carpet and there's stuff and, I, and there's a stack of hardwood. I just haven't had the time to put it down yet. That's my issue. I don't know what yours is. But it's true, isn't it? And a lot of times when we dig down and, and zero in on the root of that, um, there's a desire to be seen a certain way. 
and oh, my house isn't clean. I'm not going to have anyone over. And it comes out of the expense of relationships, doesn't it? Let me just tell you something about your friends. This may be just worth the price of admission in and of itself. Your friends come to your house to see you, not your house. Okay? I'll just help a little bit. Many people, the richer they grow in the bank account, the poorer they become in relationships. In fact, I would say that's the tendency, unless you're very careful to guard against that. In fact, as we begin um, to feel more and more important or more busy, and as we move along, a lot of us, we, we, we like to use the word boundaries. And it's good to have some healthy boundaries in life, but many times boundaries become weaponized to insulate ourselves from the very people in our lives that God may want us to reach out to. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn on over to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And I want to I read through some of Luke chapter 10, and I want to talk about this idea, and then we'll come back toward the end of it and really tie it into um, what, what does it mean for us to be an available friend. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says this, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was, everybody say this word out loud, distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, let me just ask you, this is like moment of truth. How many of you actually kind of identify more with Martha? And how many of you hate to admit that because you know where the story's going and you're already a little upset? In fact, part of you in your head, you're arguing with Jesus right now because you grew up in church, you know, you know the next couple of lines. And you're like, but things had to get done. Like, Jesus wanted to eat. He was hungry. So did his disciples. Somebody had to feed him. Somebody had to clean the house. This is where we go, isn't it? And I would say, I mean, I'm, it's very easy to look at this. And I've and I got to just be honest. I feel a little frustrated because it's like I, I, I identify. I identify. But she's distracted. And, man, how many of us can identify with that? Isn't it hard sometimes just to sit long enough to really pray and read Scripture and listen to God? To, to be available as a friend of God? Um, sometimes it's hard to show up at church. You just can't even pay attention because you're just thinking about the list of things rolling through your head that just need to be done. For oft, oftentimes this means there's relationships in our lives that we know are really important. Relationships with God or relationship with others, but our lives are just so full. We just can't feels like we're so distracted we can't get to that, right? And then you have Mary here sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, here's what you got to understand about this. Households in the first century, men and women didn't really mix. The public room here was for the men. This is first century Judaism. And, and uh, women could kind of listen from the sidelines. But here you have Mary. And what's significant about this is she's in the place of the men, right there with the other disciples, listening to Jesus. She doesn't want to miss a thing. In fact, as it says, sitting at his feet, this isn't like gazing adoringly at Jesus. This is the posture of a disciple. We see in the scriptures that Paul sat at the feet of a rabbi. I think it was Gamaliel. He sat at the feet of a rabbi. This means he was a disciple at the feet of a rabbi. He was learning. He was listening to become like 
the rabbi. And this is what we see in Mary. She was, she was listening. She wanted to be a disciple, a follower, a responsive follower of Jesus. She, she's in that place. She understands what the, the most important thing is in this moment, and that's becoming a disciple of Jesus. For Mary, she, she wants to be a responsive follower. That's what we talked about last week. And she was willing to break some social norms in order to do it. But don't miss this. She's also prioritizing a relationship with her friend. See, what we learned from John in the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead is actually this family is really good friends with Jesus. We don't know exactly how they met or anything, but Jesus, this is his home base. He stays here all the time when they, when they minister in this area close to Jerusalem. And they've become very close. In fact, when Lazarus dies and Jesus weeps, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept on what they say is, man, see how much he loved them. And so you get this idea both from John and even in here. Doesn't Martha feel pretty familiar in here? This is like a pretty close friendship relationship for her to come in and go, Jesus, look at Mary, right? Don't you see all the work that has to be done? They're friends, and she is prioritizing. She's available. She's a friend of Jesus in this moment, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this before, and you probably know how Jesus responds. Here's how he responds in verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. Now, if we just stop there, I think there would be many in this room who, if you got really sort of honest and quiet for a minute, you'd be, I am really worried and upset about many things. He says this, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. She's chosen the good stuff, the most important thing relationship. Now, I noticed something this week. Uh, years ago, I preached through the book of Luke, and uh, we did it in two different sections, and I, I didn't notice the significance of this. But there's something that comes right before this that ties this whole thing together. If you want to understand, when Jesus says, hey, she, she's done the most important thing. She's figured that out. It's this. Flip back if you're in your paper Bible. You might have to go back a page to verse 25. This is what comes right before this familiar passage of, of Mary and Martha. It says this in Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He, Jesus replied, how do you read it? So you have this idea, the guy gets up, he says, hey, what do, what do I have to do to, inter, to inherit eternal life? Literally in the Greek, it's the life of the age to come, that there's this age and then the age to come where God will make all things new. It's both eternal in time and in quality. And he's like, what do I do to, to, to get that, to experience that? And Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? It's a very common response for a rabbi. They throw a question back, answer a question with a question. How many of you have, like, a friend that does that and it drives you crazy? 
But Jesus wants him to, to really think. He wants to draw this information out of them. And it says this, that the uh, expert in the law, remember when it says the law, this is talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God's law. So he's an expert in the scriptures. And he begins with this very familiar scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. He answers with the rallying cry of the Jewish faith. This is the Shema. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. He goes on. This is a prayer that still observant Jews pray multiple times every day. Still the best-known prayer in Jewish liturgy. Everyone around was quoting it out loud with him at this point. They like, they're spinning it in their mind. They know it by heart. And what's interesting is Matthew, in Matthew and Mark, we see Jesus on a different occasion. They ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love God. But he actually combines Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, with Leviticus 19, Verse 18, and he says, this is a summation of all the law and the prophets. In, in other words, it's love God and love others. And, and what Jesus is expressing, the heart of what Jesus is expressing here is that their love for God vertically will work itself out horizontally. It will be expressed in your life at the way you treat other people. So you see things all throughout the Old Testament prophets, things like, like God saying, hey, do you think I'm pleased with your sacrifices? No, I want you to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's much more important to me than, than these sacrifices while your heart's far away and you're mistreating people. See, the, the most important thing that Jesus expresses is your relationship with God that works itself out in your relationship with others. And we think maybe Jesus said this over and over in his ministry. And maybe this guy was one in the crowd one of the other times. And so as he quotes back to Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think maybe he pauses right there and he just grins. And then he quotes a little bit from Jesus' famous addition to the statement. And love your neighbor as yourself. Second part of that in verse 27. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, ding, ding, ding. Like, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But, it says, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? See, he does something, and this is a common place where people who are religious, who are focused on religion rather than just rather than a relationship with God, focused on what can I do to earn my way and make myself good enough to tip the scales in my favor so so that God is okay with me, so that we're cool. He, he, he's wanting to do that here. And so he, he gives this little caveat. Well, who's my neighbor, really? As Jesus is going to go on, he's going to do a brilliant thing here um, where, where he does this all throughout the Gospels. If you read his words, he gets to the people to the point where they're saying, wait a minute, what you're asking is impossible. And that's the point. Jesus, so often he, he will raise the standard to illustrate how clearly we fall short of it. And so he'll say things like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you've ever lusted after a woman. 
And every guy in the crowd kind of shrinks back. He says, you've heard it say, said, don't murder. But I say, if you hate your brother. He raises the standard. It's the interesting thing. He, he raises the standard so high so you know, you know, actually, you thought you were doing pretty good on your checklist. How about that coveting one? Ooh. That's why Paul says, uh, you know, I do the things I don't want to do. He's like, I, I, there was this coveting thing, and ah, that got me. The law showed me how broken I am. And Jesus is about ready to do that in this very thing. And he's like, yeah, you think you're doing pretty good. You've checked off all your boxes. I've got some bad news for you. See, the, the heart of the gospel, this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. And I just want to share this in case you're just checking out God's church in the Bible. It's not you can tip, do good enough just to tip the scales in your favor and God's pleased with you. It's you receive, you know, you, you, don't, you don't live up to the standard. You've fallen short. Sin means we've all sinned. It literally means we, we fall short of the glory of God. That there is a perfect standard. But Jesus came and he says, I will take the punishment. I will take the consequence. The wages of sin is death. I will take that upon myself. And you just have to embrace the forgiveness that's found in me. When he dies for us and he raises again, he offers for each one. It's a free gift. We spent 19 weeks or so in Ephesians theme over and over and over again, the gospel. It's a free gift of life, free gift of salvation. That's the beauty of the gospel is he shows you, you don't, you don't stack up. But because of my blood, because of my grace, when you embrace what I did for you, when, when I died and rose again, um, you've been forgiven. You've been brought in. And then through the Holy Spirit, who he says, I, I will send to you, who indwells us, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, as you walk with him, he actually enables you to live this way. It's interesting, Christopher Hitchens, uh, he's one of uh, the group that's known as the New Atheist. It's uh, been a few years, but he, he used to argue against this passage. And first they'd argue, ah, it's not really unique to Jesus, which isn't true at all. As you go on and you read ancient ethics codes and stuff, man, Jesus does some very um, powerful and original things in this when he says, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies, seriously? Do good to those who persecute you? Jesus jacks the standard up really, really high. But he's full of grace. He's full of truth. And Hitchens says this about this. He says, to love your neighbor as yourself is too extreme and too strenuous to be obeyed. Humans are not constituted as to care for others as much as themselves. This thing simply cannot be done. You know what? He's right. That apart from the Holy Spirit, people can't live this way. So this is gospel. I mean, this is Jesus showing this religious guy that you think you're good enough, but you need me. You need me. And so he wants to justify himself. So he asked, who's my neighbor? And this is a big topic of conversation in, in the first century, a big debate. It, the, the Hebrew root word here it can mean a companion or friend. It can also be used to speak of your fellow man in a broader sense. And many, of, many at this time thought of their neighbor just as my people, my tribe. It was a very in your, in, inward thing. And so Jesus does something here. He launches next into a story, into a parable. 
And here's how it goes. He says, in reply, Jesus said this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, at this point, everybody understands um, the road to Jericho. They all knew it's this rocky, steep road that winds down 3,000 feet. And, and they could all, like, kind of shuddered because they identified with this scene. This guy's attacked. They take everything that he has. They strip his clothes, which at the time, the clothes were very valuable in the first century. And then they beat him, leave him half dead. So everybody's going, oh, man, poor guy. So this is a Jewish guy. He's hurt, verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. So the priest served in the temple, the Levite, the tribe that was chosen to perform all of the, to, to be the religious leaders, to care for the tabernacle, the temple. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and he passed by on the other side. See, these guys saw the guy, and, and here's what I think. These are good religious guys. This is the point Jesus is making. They're good guys, but somehow they see the dude laying over here, and they talk themselves out of helping. And I think it's easy for us to identify um, with the good guy, because also if you've you know, been raised in church, you probably know where the, the parable's going. They didn't when he was telling it. Um, it's, it's easy for us to identify with the good one who would do the good thing, but how many times do we talk ourselves out of something just because we don't have time to do it? We don't have time to invest in that relationship. We just don't have time to help in that situation. It's also very easy for us to take the, the story Jesus telling about a guy half, left half dead and go, well, I would do something about that, Right? But see, here's what's going on is uh, you have the priest and the Levite. Now, in the culture, if you, if you touch someone who then, um, let's say he was just dead. They didn't know if he was dead or half dead, just mostly dead. Anybody remember that movie? He's not dead. He's just mostly dead. Anyway, um, they didn't know. If he was dead, they would become ritually impure, and they wouldn't be able to go into the temple and do all of their important things for seven days. It would be a burden I'm guessing if money was needed in this situation, they would have thrown some money in. But time, ugh. I've got important things to do. I've got important places to be. Martha, I'm worried and concerned about a lot of things, and they're actually good things, important things. Your, your boys need some food, Jesus. They're important things. I'm doing important stuff. I'm serving God doing religious things. Yet in the midst of it, they miss the thing that God's doing right in front of them. In that moment, there's something more important. There's a person in need. There's a call to be an available friend, in this case, to someone they didn't know. But how many times do we pass up a chance to be an available friend to someone we do know and we are invested in, but we just don't take the time because our schedules are too full because we have more important things to do. Now, at this point, Jesus does something so shocking, it's kind of hard to communicate what a slap in the face this would be to the listener. Um, 
in, in the culture, they would tell rabbis, they would tell stories. Rabbis would tell stories with a, like a common template. And so this was a common one. One of the most common ones was there was a priest, there was a Levi, and there was a Pharisee. Kind of like a common joke. Dad joke. There was a pastor, a priest, and a rabbi. A pastor, a priest, and a rabbi walk into a bar. The bartender looks at him and says, what, is this a joke? That's the joke. You can groan. So, so you have the priest and the Levite who fail the test of loving their fellow Jewish person. And in this common template, they would be expecting the Pharisee actually is going to step in and be the hero of the story somehow. So at this point, everybody's like, okay, where's Jesus going with it? And he, here's where he goes with it. But a Samaritan. And at this point, everybody just groans. Oh, because they hate Samaritans. They didn't just not get along. They really hated each other. The Samaritans were kind of the half-breed tribes that moved in hundreds of years behind this. In fact, James and John, you remember like two of the apostles, they, because they, some, a Samaritan village dissed them a little bit, they're like, we're going to call down fire, Jesus. Jesus, like, time out, boys. He had this whole, like, huddle up. You guys are clearly not getting the program. That's how much they despised these guys. In fact, there were two really famous rabbis that lived before Jesus. One was Shammai and one was Hillel. And Shammai, um, they asked, if you asked Shammai, who's my neighbor, he would have responded, your fellow Jew. If you asked him, do I have to love a Roman? He'd say, no, they're our enemies. See, this is why it's so revolutionary when Jesus said, love your enemies. Hillel, uh, if you asked Hillel, who is my neighbor, he would have responded, your fellow Jew. Do I have to love a Roman? He would have said, yes. They're your neighbor as well. So he included them in there. But if you'd asked him, do I have to love a Samaritan? He would have said, of course not. Nobody should love a Samaritan. These are like the true prominent religious leaders. And so Jesus introduces this guy, and everybody's on the edge of their seat, like waiting to hear where this goes. Because like the worst guy is now like in the picture. And here's it goes. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on the oil and the wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And everybody's just like groaning, you got to be kidding, Jesus. There's no way that a Samaritan would do that for a Jewish person. He's taken, like, like the, the biggest villain and turned him into the hero. And then it gets worse. The next day, the next day. What does that mean? He's on his way somewhere, and he takes the whole night. Like, he interrupts his schedule. He had things to do, places to go. He puts it aside. Because in this moment, there's something more important that Jesus, that God has placed in his path. The opportunity to be, to be a friend, an available friend to someone. I, uh, Friday, I was um, you know, working on preparing a message. and I, uh, It's okay. We have a little thing with the fire uh, alarm. It's not an alarm, actually. So... It's a little trouble thing. Rain got in the system. So anyway, I was, uh, 
I, I was like selling something on Marketplace, and I met this person, and they actually like didn't. They gave me full price I'm, on my ask. I was like, sweet. I was expecting to get talked down. And I'm pulling out of there and uh, sold some wheels. And I'm pulling out of there, and uh, I see this guy um, with a car parked there and a sign that says, need gas. And normally, I, normally I, I don't respond in those kinds of things. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, and you can judge me and whatever, but... In this moment, I just felt the tug of God. And so I had pulled out already, so I had to turn around and come back, and I'm like, hey, man, you really need gas? He's like, yeah. And, it, you know, he told me he's trying to get to California. His, his aunt has diagnosed with cancer and this, this whole thing. He's from Greeley. And so I'm like, well, follow me down to the gas station. We jump down, and I'm like, why don't you just fill it up? I don't want you to get stranded like in Green River. So just fill it up. And so he did. And, uh, and I got to pray with him and told him about this church and this pastor I love over in Greeley. I'm like, when you get home, you go check that out. So it was kind of a cool moment. And now you're thinking, wow, cool, Pastor Tim's good, right? But it didn't cost me very much. I mean, it cost me a little bit of money, but I just made extra money on the wheels, right? Um, time. See, there's lots of us that are okay, help it in the situation like that. But man, our time's a whole different thing. And it's a whole different thing because we don't have any margin in our lives. We've built our lives in such a way that there is no margin and no opportunity to help when we are what's needed. So he says this, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. That's two days wages. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. He invested his time. He invested his, his resources. Now Jesus asked the probing question, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who had fell into the hands of robbers? At this point, everyone is silent, right? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, Jesus, in this moment, tells a parable that would forever define what a neighbor means for every culture from this point on. Isn't it remarkable that 2,000 years later, when you walk through those doors, you all had a picture in your mind of what a good Samaritan was? Every one of us, probably. And here's the cool thing is you may not yet believe that Jesus is the Lord of all, but you have to admit that if everyone in, this, in, the, in our town followed even just this one teaching of Jesus, it would be a radically different place, wouldn't it? Now, what's interesting about this is Luke goes directly, and I'd never noticed this before, he goes directly from here into the whole Mary-Martha story. And as I was looking at that, I'm like, I think there's something significant about that. Because he goes right from there into Martha, the whole thing of you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. How are these two things tied together? How are these two thoughts put together? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to put these things right together in the Bible? Jesus says, hey, two things are necessary, but really just one of them. And here's why. Your relationship with God, it works itself out in your relationship with 
with others. That's why he starts out by saying, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes ding, 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 right? And then tells a story about this guy who, who gives of his time, who gives of his attention to be an available friend in the moment. Love God, love others. And, and here's the thing you see in Mary as she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. For you and me, as we spend quiet time in prayer and reading scripture and listening to the, to the Holy Spirit and responding and obey, all the stuff we talked about last week, as we are a regular part of a local church, we invest our time and we hear the word and we apply it to our lives and we allow our lives to be challenged and convicted in community with each other as we spend time encouraging each other. The effect of all that should be our love for God results in more love for others. Our relationship with God works itself out in us being an available friend to others. See, a devoted apprentice of Jesus, a disciple, is necessarily others-oriented. When Jesus gives us one of his primary commands right before the cross in John, what does he say? A new command I give to you, love one another. And you've probably heard it so many times, it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was how Peter was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what was that other thing you talked about, Jesus? And Jesus is like, no, actually, by this, others will know that you're my disciples. If you love each other. There's something that should be magnetic about this community and our love for others, both those of the family of faith and those outside of it. That's why Paul comes around in Galatians, and he tells us the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He says, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And listen to what he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that? Because if you trust Jesus, you have a growing relationship with Jesus. That expresses it itself in the way that we care for others. You know, as you read through the New Testament, most of the commands, the stuff we're supposed to do, we saw a bunch of this in Ephesians 5, 4 and 5. It's worked out in the context of one another. Around here, we call that one anothering. It's doing life with each other. It's being available to each other. It's in your family, in your closest relationships, as you encourage each other to move towards Jesus. An available friend. An available friend. I want to encourage you today. How are you doing at this, at being an available friend? An available friend. I am consistently prioritizing friendships by keeping room in my schedule to connect with people. You know, in order to do this, um, you need to create a little bit of margin in your life. You need to actually take a look at all the really important good things, perhaps not all of them. Maybe there's some things that are just wasters of time. And you need to say, do I have any margin in my life that if God interrupts me and says, I need, you need to go and spend a few hours over at this friend, can you do that? You need to intentionally leave some time and some space for others in your life. A good, uh, an available friend knows when to drop something in order to prioritize relationships. Sometimes at the expense of some social pressure. Sometimes, you know, I mean, the social pressure on Mary, right? Is to be in there, 
getting stuff done. She's out of her zone, but she's exactly where she needs to be. Some, some of you, you need to get over your, your, your house and just have some people over to it. And I tell you, with this whole little group thing as we're prepping for that, I, honestly, I, um, I struggle with that because I got a bunch of things that aren't done. Some of you know that feeling. <laughs> get over yourself. Invite some people into your life. An available friend. We have two little questions to help you with this. Just to think through, how are, you, how are you doing on this on an everyday basis or an every week basis? Available friend. Who have I made time for this week? Who have I made time for this week? And I see this in a couple different categories. One is in gospel-focused friendships. Areas like life groups or, or a discipleship group, um, some close believers. Are, are you investing in some gospel-focused friendships in your life. You know, we believe that some of your closest friends should be people you go to church with. That's our goal. We can't make it happen, but hopefully in the environments and stuff that are created, a lot of you, for a lot of you, that's going to happen. That some of your closest friends would be people you go to church with who are going to encourage you in your walk. See, um, but also, here's what tends to happen. The longer you've been a believer, you tend to be more and more insulated from people who do not yet know Jesus. It just naturally happens. And then try to like jumping into vocational ministry. <laughs> then everybody you hang out with pretty much knows Jesus. Do you have room in your life for people who don't yet know Jesus? To invest in relationships with people. To walk with them for the long haul. Genuinely care about them, love them, not just a project. Because people can sniff that out from them 10 miles away. But when you genuinely love people and care about them, of course you're going to want to tell them about Jesus. Relationship with Jesus. I mean, if what the scriptures say are true, and we believe they are, it's the most important thing you can figure out in life is, is what it means to follow Jesus and give your life to him. Be a follower of Jesus. You're going to love people in your life enough to figure out, like, and not be obnoxious about it, but figure out how to, how to tell them about Jesus, invite them, bring them into a relationship with Jesus, encourage them. But also be careful because don't miss the gospel-focused friendships thing, especially young people, because your friends will be some of the most influential people when it comes to the quality and the direction of your life. Bad company corrupts good character. Be very careful that you're being the influence toward Jesus, not the one being pulled away from him. But also, don't, don't make the mistake of being so insulated that you just don't have anybody in your life that doesn't know Jesus yet. Second question, who in my circle is hurting right now? Who in my circle is hurting right now? See, Jesus, he went into the homes of tax collectors and sinners. He got in trouble with the religious people for it. Not to participate with them in sin, but he said the sick need a doctor. Of course I'm going to go there. So you got to be investing, meeting people where they, are, where they are. Don't expect people who don't know Jesus to act like they know Jesus. But be praying for them. Even here, we're, we want to create a, a, a church here where people can belong before they believe. 
where you can, you can know you belong here. If that's you, you're welcome. We're so glad you're here. Now, we also say it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. We want, we want you to move toward Jesus as you learn his truth, reorient your life. Most importantly, we want you to have a relationship with him to experience his grace and his love and his forgiveness. Who in, who in your circle is hurting right now? Part of this means you speak the truth and love to people in your circle and your friends, your family. You know the most loving thing to do is telling people when you see danger ahead? Now you do that with grace. But that's, that's why it's so important to tell people about Jesus. Because if what Jesus says is true, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The most loving thing you can do is tell them that information and invite them to follow Jesus. Here's what I know. The closer you grow in relationship to Jesus, your primary relationship, the more you will be an available friend. If that's not true in your life, you're leaning into religion, not relationship. How many of you need to hear this tonight? I'm going to invite Winston to come up as we close. How many of you need to hear the words of Jesus? You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. How are you doing right now in loving him with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength? And, and a good indicator is how is that overflowing in you being an available friend to those around you? Would you stand? I want to pray for you. But before I pray for you, I, I want to give an opportunity. Um, as important as it is to be an available friend for others, as part of being a disciple, a, a devoted apprentice of Jesus, what's most important is becoming a friend of God. And you do that through faith and trust in Jesus. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I hope you do, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond as we just bow our head and close our eyes. And I'm going to just pray a simple prayer, and you can just pray something like this after me. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to be part of your family. Or would you forgive me of my sin? Would you welcome me? And I want to be your friend. I want to have a relationship with you. Lord, I turn from my old way, and I just want to follow you with the rest of my life. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. And Lord, for the rest of my friends, I pray, as we think about Mary just sitting at your feet, learning, growing, would you just remind us what the most important things in our life right now that you're saying? I want you to pay attention to that. I want you to invest in that. Would you give us the ability to remove some of those distractions and worries and cares and focus on that? Pray that we as your followers would be available friends to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.